what is this, the fifth lesson in the story of the book of Ruth. So turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. I don't know if you remember, but let's see, was it 95? I, I don't remember the date, but you probably remember the situation. The U.S. Airways Flight 1549. You might not remember that, but if I say the word Sully, you might remember the incident. There was a, a flight, a U.S. Airways flight, that was leaving LaGuardia, New York City. It was on its way to Charlotte, and then was going to eventually make its way to uh, Seattle. Captain Sully Sullenberg was the pilot that day. 154, 153, I guess it was, souls on board. And as they were taken off, there was a bird strike, meaning a bunch of birds in a flock got into the engine and shut everything down. Um, you can read about the, the conversation between Sully and, and ground control. They offered to let him come turn around and come back to LaGuardia, but there was no way. He couldn't control the plane. They offered a couple other nearby air, uh, airports. He didn't think he could make it. And he spotted the Hudson River and decided that was his best choice. And he put that, that plane, it was a A320, I think it was, he put that plane down on the, on the Hudson River. I'm sure you've seen that classic, unbelievable, iconic picture of that plane floating in the middle of the river and people out standing on the, on the wings. No one perished that day. There were very little uh, signs or symbols, signs or, or effect on people. But as you might imagine, as the thing began to settle, they got all the people off, and all the stuff inside was presumed lost. But it wasn't really lost because they immediately contacted a company called Global BMS, a Fort Worth company, that specialized in disaster recoveries. And the moment they were able to, to dredge that airplane out, the, you know, the next person in after the, you know, the immediate people that were uh, you know, tying it down so they could get it on a, on a barge and get it out of there, right behind him was one of the employees from this company. And uh, his job was to go in and tag and bag everything. So everything that was in that plane, they, they put it in a specialized kind of Ziploc bag, if you will, put a number on it and a location on it and made their way through the plane. 150 some odd passengers, that's a lot of stuff. They freeze it because somehow freezing it puts kind of a suspended animation to it and the, and the, and the uh, stuff that starts eating it away out of, the, out of the water is slowed down in the freezing process. Some eight or nine months later, um, when everybody thought everything that they owned was lost, um, an executive from that particular company visited a woman who was on that plane. She knocked on her door uh, and she said, I have a few things for, for you. And she delivered back to this, this executive woman, she delivered back her briefcase, her purse, her mink coat, and a, and a carry-on suitcase with all the contents that were in there, including a, a, a gigantic large diamond ring that had been given to her husband, from her husband on their 25th anniversary. And also in the packet was a cleaned up, ready to be framed boarding pass for seat 5D. It had all been redeemed. Somehow or another that company knew how to to redeem back from water damage all the stuff that, that was in that airplane. And when I read that story, I couldn't help but think about our lesson today. 
Our lesson today is all about redeeming. In fact, I called the lesson the kinsman redeemer. So let's look at chapter four and start with verse number one and uh, think about this redemption stuff. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Beep, 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 beep. What? There's land? This is the first time this is mentioned in this story. We haven't heard anything about uh, uh, Ruth have, excuse me, Ruth having um, uh, land that was part of her husband's uh, legacy. But here it is. He says, Naomi's come back. She's selling this piece of land. I thought I should bring the matter to you, to your attention, and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do so except you. And then I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, okay, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kingsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my whole estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from, from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. And then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Through, through the offspring the Lord gives you, um, by this young woman, may your family be, be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to, Jodah, to Judah. So let's stop right there. Back up just a second. There are really four voices or four speeches in, in this chapter. There's Boaz doing some talking uh, in, in verses 8, 9, and 10. There's people that are at the gate with him in verses 11 through 12. And then the women in the village that have joined the witnesses uh, are going to have something to say in 14 and 15, which we'll get to next week. And then the narrator is going to sum everything up, up for us at the end of chapter 4. The, the scene that we're talking about, the first 12 verses, takes place at the town gate. You say, what's the big deal about the town gate? Well, in that culture, that was a seat of government. We have city hall in our world or we have the capital of California, or we have Washington DC as the capital of our nation, they had city gates. And so anyone who was an elder, and the word for elder in the Old Testament literally means someone with a beard. In other words, an older person suggesting wisdom. 
um, the elders would come and sit at the city gate and then they would decide all kinds of things, administrative things, they would do some judging if necessary, they would do some advising, they dealt with outsiders if there was an issue, and they could be official witnesses. And in our story, they are official witnesses. He goes and gets 10 of them. There's probably more than that, but he gets 10 of them. 10 is an interesting number in the Old Testament. For example, uh, when the Jews split and took off out of Jerusalem, and were starting to populate everywhere and they wanted to set up a synagogue, they couldn't set up a synagogue unless there were 10 male Jews in that community. So 10, 10 was the, the checkoff number for, okay, we got enough, we can, we can set up a synagogue or a place to worship Yahweh. 10 here suggests that there was a quorum. So here at this, this place of business, at the city gate, Boaz has gone. He's got 10 men, the elders of the city. He's come and he, and he commands them. The text doesn't really sound that way, but it's not a suggestion. It's, no, it's not, hey, would you like to sit here? It's sit here. And he says the same thing um, to, uh, to everyone that's coming to that meeting. I want you to sit down, sit here, sit here. So then there starts to be this dialogue between Boaz and somebody I'm going to call Mr. So-and-so. Now I call him Mr. So-and-so because he's not named in our text at all. We don't know who he is. And in fact, the way the Hebrew is written, it's suggesting that Boaz wanted to keep his identity uh, uh, under wraps. Now we don't know exactly why we could surmise if things went well, yeah, he would get credit for it, Mr. So-and-so would, but what if things didn't go well? You know, what if, what if the, the deal didn't turn out right? What if he wasn't able to do everything he said? What if, what if he didn't want to marry uh, uh, Ruth in the end, which he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, maybe maybe uh, Boaz is just protecting his, his identity. But in, in some unknown reason why, for some unknown reason why, Boaz takes the, it's Mr. So-and-so. He doesn't tell us who he is. So he is. Now there's going to be two issues that show up early on in this chapter. The first issue is, what are we going to do about the land? And that's why when I was reading it, I went, wait, 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 what, what, land? I mean, at no point in chapters one to three does Naomi make any indication that she has land. The indication is they're dead broke. They've got no resources. That's why Ruth has got to go out and do the gleaning. There's no indication that there was some piece of land that could be farmed or, you know, they could put goats on it or they could put sheep on it. There was no, there's no indication of a resource, but apparently there was. Now it's kind of interesting, you know, you and I know that the land has to stay with the family. I want to remind you by going to Leviticus, Leviticus verse uh, chapter 25. So the Bible's very clear about how the land was supposed to be passed on from family member to family member to family member. It was never to be sold off on a permanent basis. It could be rented off or acquired for a period of time, but it always had to come back to the family that, that originally um, came on that land. When they came back into the promised land, God divided it out and he intended for that, that a tribe and therefore that clan to stay on the land that was theirs. And in Leviticus chapter 25, look at verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but, but aliens and my tenants throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of your land. So if you came into hard times and you couldn't make your bills, you couldn't 
pay for yourself. And you, you felt like the only resource you had was to sell the land. You couldn't sell it really permanently. You could sell off the resource kind of thing, lease it to somebody. And during that time, they could plant the crops or bring on the goats or bring on the lambs or whatever they were going to do with the land, turn it into some sort of a resource. But at the end of 50 years, the, 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 the time of the Jubilee, it would all revert, revert back to the original landowner. The truth of the matter is we don't have evidence that Israel ever celebrated the land of Jubilee. We don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. You can read on both sides of that. But the, the, the underlying principle is the land stayed with the family, period, end of report. Now we don't hear that she has this and suddenly Boaz is going to have a, con a conversation with, the, with the, the, the cousin who is closest to Elimelech and, and starts with the discussion of the land. Now, when he gave Ruth his promise in chapter 3 about caring for her, he never mentions the land. Land does not come up anywhere. The only, the only promises or indications that Boaz has given is that I'm going to take care of you, Ruth. And now he starts the discussion at, at, at the city gates in front of the government officials about the land. Now, um, you know, why didn't she say anything about it? Several possibilities. One. Maybe Elimelech sold the land before he le left. It was a time of famine. Maybe there was nothing growing on the land. And so, you know, for a pittance, he sold it. He rented it out to someone. And when they got back, it still was fallow and nothing was going on. Um, maybe she didn't think of it as a resource at all because it was just weeds and sitting there. Or, or maybe when he went to leave, Elimelech had a, a relative step up and the relative had worked the land and, um, and now, you know, th there, there's going to be a, a disruption if, if somebody comes in and says, well, wait a minute, this distant cousin that Elimelech said, yeah, it worked the land. Now there's another distant cousin that comes in and says, no, I, I, I'm, the, I'm the kinsman redeemer here. I'll, I'll uh, provide for the land. I'll take it over. We don't know exactly why it was not a discussion on the part of, of Ruth and even Boaz. But that's what happened. So Boaz, he brings it up first. Maybe, maybe he was just using it as, as a, uh, a strategic moment. You know, when a, when a lawyer makes arguments, when they stand up in court, they've thought through that argument. They don't start with point five. They start with point one and work their way to where they want that witness to go. Maybe Boaz is doing that. Maybe he's focusing on blessing uh, Ruth and therefore Naomi having to do with Naomi's land before he gets to the Owen, oh, I'll take care of, of Ruth herself. Um, I don't know why, but he brings it up. When he brings it up, the nearer kinsman goes, yep, I'll buy it. So apparently he knew about it. He knew it had value and worth. He could, he could envision something with that land. Maybe it was already being farmed. Maybe he just knew it was strategically located. Maybe he just wanted to add to his own holdings. We don't know. Story doesn't tell us. But, but he's anxious to, to do it right away. Yep, I'll do it. Well, there's another little problem. And so we're in uh, Leviticus. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 25, both of these passages are in sections where the extended law is being discussed in our Bible. And in Deuteronomy 25, we, we have another principle that's going to come up that Boaz is going to be careful to, to walk through. Look at uh, 25 and verse number 5. We read this a little bit last week, I think. 
It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out forever. And then it goes on to make some provision about, well, what if the guy doesn't want to marry? Then it goes to the next kinsman and so on and so on and so on. So, so when he, when he uh, strategically starts a discussion for, for, for land, he's not forgotten his commitment to, to Ruth. Boaz is, um, is not, not neglecting his promise, his commitment to her. He's just taking care of business in a very strategic kind of way. You also got to remember that in Israel, especially at this time, a person's name their children, their, their lineage, their, their offspring, and the land that they lived on were all, all connected. It was all part and parcel. You know, I'm, I'm Joe, and I'm of the clan of Judah, or of the tribe of Judah and the clan of Elimelech, and I live, you know, three and a half miles outside uh, of Bethlehem on the little hill. Those things would have been intertwined. So if you were talking about someone's land, you're really referring to their lineage or their heritage. If you talked about their name, you're talking about their heritage. If you talked about the, the, the offspring that they have, he's got six boys, this is great. There's again a discussion of heritage. They're all intertwined. So maybe um, Boaz knows that by bringing up marriage to Ruth, uh, he's going to scare off this, this, this near kinsman. And uh, for whatever reason, Mr. So-and-so says very quickly, yep, I'll buy the land. But when he gets to see that buying of the land, Ruth is part of that deal. You get the land, you also get the, the, the new wife. Now at that point... Technically, whoever Mr. So-and-so is, first cousin twice, twice removed or whatever, he, he technically does not have the same level of responsibility that, that someone else might have to marry Ruth. Because as we read in 25, in Deuteronomy 25, that, you know, if you were living with them, if you were nearby, if you were on the land that was in question, there were some characteristics, or so not characteristics, there were some you know, um, stipulations. That's the word I'm struggling for. There were some stipulations to be met. And technically, Mr. So-and-so doesn't meet those. So he could have said, eh, I, you know, can't, can't marry her. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe he, he said to himself, well, you know, I'm struggling to work my own land. I, I don't have that many... Um, servants and you know we did have the big famine and I'm behind in my whatever and taking on another piece of land while it looks like it would be a great idea it really is just going to be a, a, a bigger burden I, I don't know if, if I want to take that on maybe he said to himself you know what I've got maybe one wife maybe more than one wives as you know in the Old Testament they often had multiple wives maybe he said to himself my main wife, she's not going to take too kindly to me bringing another one. Even though culturally it happened all the time, maybe whoever Mr. So-and-so's Mrs. So-and-so is a little on the cranky side, and he knows that. And bringing this young, you know, seemingly beautiful Moabite in was going to upset the apple cart. I don't know if that was it. I also don't know, maybe he looked and he said, well, if I take the land and I take Ruth, then when a, when a son is born, the son ha has rights to that land. 
not my sons, not my sons by my other wives, but the, the son by, by Ruth is going, going to have access to that. And I don't want my heritage split all up. I don't want it to go to her son, which would have been his seed, but, but by declaration under the kinsman policy, it would have, it would have gone to, under the name of Malon, Ruth's uh, husband. Maybe he didn't like that deal. Maybe her being a Moabite was just too much for him. Now remember, they were enemies. They were not supposed to have anything to do with them. They had limited, uh, even as, a, as an immigrant, they had limited resources in, in Israel. Um, and even though Ruth seemingly has been accepted by this community, it's almost like she holds two passports. You know, I got a passport for, you know, England and I got a passport for here. Um, do you have a pa U.S. passport? Okay, so you get two passports, Ukrainian passport and a U.S. passport. Well, in, in Ruth's case, maybe, maybe that's what happened. She's so acclimatized into the community. She's such a nice kid that, that they, they kind of see her in a different way, not really as a Moabite, but as one of them. But maybe he goes, I don't know, I don't know. Whatever the issues were, Mr. So-and-so says, I'll take the land, but I don't want the marriage. And so Boaz steps up and he becomes the substitute for the substitute. The, 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 the kinsman redeemer who was closest to them should have stepped up for all the possible reasons I've given you. He didn't. And so Boaz st steps to the plate and says, well, okay, then if he's not, I'm going to. And so when we get to verses 9 and 10, we're back in Ruth now, in verses 9 and 10, there's going to be a deal struck. It's kind of interesting the way this, this deal is going to be struck. Look at verse 8 for just a second. So the kinsman redeemer, that's Mr. So-and-so, says to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So the antecedent of the pronoun he there has been argued about. But most likely that's actually Mr. So-and-so. And, and he's the one that's saying, hey, um, I can't do it. Uh, let's get this deal done. Takes his shoe off as a, as a sign of sealing the deal. I'm relinquishing my rights to the land. I'm relinquishing my rights and responsibilities to step up and care for, um, for Ruth. Here's my shoe, my sandal to seal the deal. Um, it's, it's interesting that when they, when they would normally do this, it would have been the woman, the woman who was scorned, the woman who was not being cared for by the appropriate kinsman redeemer would take off her shoe and essentially she'd spit in the guy's face and, 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 and proclaim that this is now the family of the unsandaled, meaning you rotten nose good won't step to the plate and do what you ought to do and here's my sandal to, you know, to seal the deal. But in this case, it's, it's the kinsman redeemer, the nearest one. He takes his sandal off and, and he hands it over to Boaz, making the deal. It's done. You get it. It's very interesting in the Bible how they signified that they did deals, business arrangements. Sometimes they exchanged salt. Um, salt was a commodity that was very important in ancient days, obviously for lots of very practical reasons. Uh, preserving meat and a whole bunch of other stuff, it became like money. They would, you know, you get two bags of salt for whatever. The expression, he's not worth his salt, 
It's not worth the value of the bag of salt that we're going to exchange for him. So sometimes they, they did that. Sometimes they wrote contracts, like on a piece of parchment, rolled it up, put it in a clay pot, and sealed it, and then went and buried it somewhere where everybody knew. Because you didn't have a city hall where you could go record it. So they would record it on the, on the papyrus, roll it up, stick it in a jar, put a top on it, and bury it in the yard. There's a great story about that in Jeremiah 32. When, when the, the hordes are coming over the hill, hill to attack Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is right on the throes of, of, of being overrun and completely wiped out. And one of the prophets named Jeremiah has, a, has a, a cousin named Hanamel who shows up in Jerusalem, how he got into the city, because they were encampments everywhere, the big, big encampments all around the city. He worms his way into the city. He finds, he finds in essence, his cousin, uh, Jeremiah, and he says, hey, Jeremiah, I got a deal for you. I got some land and I want to sell it to you. And he strikes a deal with, with Jeremiah uh, for a piece of land that was in their family line. And, and the reason God told him to go ahead and buy it, now this is so stupid. They're in the middle of a war. They're about to be overcome. The, the, the land has zero valley or value. In fact, the enemy is encamped on that piece of land. And here shows up your cousin saying, cousin saying, boy, do I have a deal for you. And God says, yeah, do that. Make that deal. The great punchline to that story is God knew the end result, not just the one that looked like it was going to be the end, but the actual end, that they would go into exile and be returned, and the great and glorious uh, return of, uh, of the Israelites back to the land of Israel was going to happen. And as a picture of that, he had his man, his preacher, go by the land, and the, and the, the story in Jeremiah I think it's 32, it tells about how they wrote it up on a piece of parchment, rolled it up, put it in a clay jar, put a pot on it, and, and went and buried it somewhere so they could have it. That's, that's how they did deals. Or they took their sandal off and handed it to the guy. And in this case, that's what's happening. Sandals are being uh, distributed here as a, a seal that, yep, we're going to do the deal. Now, technically, like I said, Mr. So-and-so is not... Is not um, uh, you know, doing something bad by refusing his obligation to the widow. He is not required. He's not, he's not meeting every quali quali qualification to be the one. She could have taken her shoe off, spit in his face and said, you know, the family of the unsandaled, but it, it doesn't happen that way. So Mr. So-and-so is going to turn to Boaz and say, all right, we've struck a deal. You get her, you go by yourself. I, you know, here's my shoe. And, and all the witnesses and apparently some other people from the city had come out and kind of get gathered around. So there's quite a little crowd now. All of them provide themselves as official witnesses that the name of Malon, her husband, would never disappear. Pretty cool. So then the last part that we want to talk about today is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. So verse 11 and 12, the, the elders... And all those at the gate, we don't know how many are out there now, say we are witnesses. And then they give a threefold, I don't know if you'd call it a blessing or a, three, a threefold uh, prayer, a threefold desire for, for the outcome of this marriage between Boaz and Ruth. And they say in the first, the first part of that is that may the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the house of Israel. Now, if you know your Bible history, you know that Leah and Rachel were married to Jacob. And, and Leah ends up having six children, six boys, and one daughter. Rachel ends up having two boys. They connive and use their handmaids to get Bilhah to have two more boys and Zilpah to have two more boys. So between them, there's going to be 12 boys and one girl named Dinah. The, the witnesses and the people that are sitting in the city gates are ex- expressing to Boaz and, and Ruth as well, may you have a ton of kids. Because in that culture, if you had a ton of kids, particularly if they were boys, you were, you were making certain that your family line would, would continue. That, that the line that is so important for the Israelites to maintain could be maintained because there's a heritage in, in the family. So the first, the first blessing is may you just be like Rachel and Leah and have a ton of kids. The second one, it's interesting, they go on to say, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. So uh, the Ephrathah is just the ancient name for, Be- for Bethlehem. So um, this, this particular part of the blessing or this particular part of their prayer is that the man, Boaz, would have good standing. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31. What is this all about? What's with the, with the good standing stuff? Proverbs 31 and verse number 23. So if you hear Proverbs 31, you should remember that this is all about the, the virtuous woman. And down in verse number 23, here's what the Bible says. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. So when the, the witnesses and the other city people that are out there with Boaz and Ruth and Mr. So-and-so, as part of their blessing, as part of their prayer, they're saying, may, may Boaz have, have standing in the community. Maybe, maybe he, may he be recognized as a man of worth and value and significance, wise, you know, a, a leader in our community. Um, and it's interesting to me that in Proverbs 31, that's the, the injunction for every wife, that, that they would build up their husband to the point that they, would, they the husband, would be recognized in the, in the community as, as, a, as a leader, as a man of worth and value and dignity. And that's what they're praying for, for Boaz. The third thing they're going to pray for is that the family line would be like that of Perez. Now, Perez was a son of, of Judah. But what, what they're saying is there's a royal line. There's an expectation from the time of the covenant with Abraham, which we're going to get into next week. From that moment on, the children of Israel knew there was a line. And from that line, a line of what, what I'm talking about is not a line in the sand or a line on the dirt, but a, but a, um, a, a line meaning a heritage from, from father to son, from son to son, from son to son to son. From that line would come the Messiah. And so the third thing they're praying is that may the family be like that of Perez. May this family, the, the family that's going to be formed with Boaz and, and, uh, and Ruth, may, may from that line come the Messiah. They don't know anything about it. They, they can't see into the future, but, but they're, they're asking a blessing. And part of their blessing is may they have lots of children, especially sons, May Boaz have a great standing in the community and may out of their family 
the, the, the royal line continue. It's a cool story. It really is a cool story. But when you finish the story, you say to yourself, okay, um, what's the application for us? We might have family uh, close and we might have great relationships with our family or we may have very little family and no relationships with them at all. My mom uh, was, uh, only had one sibling. My dad only had one sibling. I was never around my cousins on either side. I wouldn't know them if they walked in the back door today. I, I wasn't, you know, our family wasn't developed like that. You might be, you know, somewhere close by and every, every holiday you got a house full of relationships and there's Uncle Fred and Aunt Susie and, you know, thousands of cousins and, and so on. It, 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 it's not talking about that kind of lineage. It's not talking about that kind of family. But it is talking about the principle of being redeemed. There's a great old hymn that says, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Uh, redeemed in his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. It's the process of biblical redemption. And I think that's the takeaway for us out of this story. In, in the Bible, in order to be a kinsman redeemer, in or, order to be that family person who by responsibility and opportunity could buy back land and could take back widows that were, were out on the fringe of society, there were four requirements for that kinsman. And Mr. So-and-so and Boaz meet all four of them. One, they had to be kin. They had to be from their family. Jewish people are very, very, very cognizant of their family uh, lineage. That's why there's so many genealogies in our Bible. You and I, when we read, we get to that and go, oh, another genealogy, and we turn the pages. In my own devotional life, I'm in the first part of First Chronicles in the first, what, eight chapters or nothing, but so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. What, what, doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know these guys. It meant something really important to them. A kinsman had to be from your family. There had to be a relational tie. There had to be a connection between those two family members. That's the first requirement. Second, they had to be willing. They couldn't be forced. Mr. So-and-so could not be forced into taking uh, uh, on Ruth. He was willing to take the land, but he didn't want her. He had to have been willing in order to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz steps up and is in fact willing and will become her kinsman redeemer. That's the second. And the third thing is not just willing, but, but can you do something about it? Have you got the resources necessary to buy back, in this case, land or, or to pay off a debt or to make it so that the woman could come live in your house? Do you have the means necessary, the resources to, to make such a redemption happen? And certainly Boaz could and lastly, the full price had to be paid. You couldn't come in and say, well, you're asking whatever it was for the land to be returned. How about, there's no, there's no negotiation here. The full price had to be paid. Does this not sound like something that happened in the New Testament? I mean, there should be bells going off in your head. Is there a kinsman redeemer in the New Testament? Yes. And that kinsman redeemer is Jesus Christ himself. He met all four of those requirements. He became one of us. How did he become one of us? 
The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, I put the notes, put it in your notes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But the first part, the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. One, one writer said, and He pitched His tent with us. He chose to become a, a human being, to join our physical family. Not just a spiritual family, but he chose to become flesh, to limit himself. He willingly laid down his, his almightiness and picked up his humanness for the purpose of being able to, to meet a criteria to be our kinsman redeemer. Why, why would he want to leave heaven and leave all of the things that were true about being the second person of the Trinity and willingly set it down, Philippians says, in order to pick up humanity to be just like us. So the Bible could say, could say, he's been tempted just like us, but he chose not to sin. He knows what it's like to live our life. When things are not good in our life, he knows he's had experiences. And, 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 and he became one of us. He was called in Hebrews chapter two, our brother. He chose to, to align himself, to become our family member, to, to make himself available for that. So absolutely, he is from our family line. Secondly, he was willing. He was willing, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even the death on the cross. The, the qualification was that he had to be willing. Look at how he is willing. He humbled himself to become obedient uh, to the cross. Why? Because in his mind, he thought of Sherry. And Sherry was a mess. And Sherry needed to be redeemed. And on that moment, in his mind and heart, he's paying the price for me. He's stepping up as my kinsman and redeemer and said, no, no, she does not have to, for all eternity, atone for her sin. I'm going to do that on her behalf. I am going to redeem her. And in, in those three hours that he hung on the cross, he redeemed me. And presumably, he redeemed you. He was willing and he was able, more than willing, he was able. The Bible says in Romans 5, just as one trespass or one sin resulted in the condemnation for all people, that's the Adam and Eve thing, so also one righteous act, that is Christ on the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous. He was not only willing to do it, he was able to do it. He uniquely was able to redeem. And then he paid the whole price. Not, not, not a piece of it, but the whole. Titus chapter 2 says this, He gave life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. When he was on the cross, he made seven statements. One of his statements 
in John 19, verse number 30, he says, tetelestai, tetelestai, uh, a, a, an Aramaic term, I believe it is, and it's translated in most of our Bibles, it is finished. The derivish, derivation, derivation of that word came from the business world. So if you had a business and you were selling who knows what, and you were giving someone a bill of sale, a, a receipt, maybe, maybe uh, he's buying, I don't know, whatever he's buying from you, and he comes in to exchange his money for now a bill of receipt. They even in those days had a, had a stamp. I don't know what the stamp looked like, but they had a stamp. And they would take that bill of sale and stamp it. Boom. And that little stamp meant paid in full. Boom. Paid in full. Hand it back to the merchant and he would leave. No one would ever question if a transaction had been done properly. They could just hold up the bill of sale and see right here, paid in full, to tell us I. Jesus used that word from the cross, meaning on the, on the basis of Sherry's sin, that which she inherited from Adam and that which she reinforced every day of her life, that had been paid in full, slam, bang, done, stamped on my, on my piece of paper. The scope of the redemption that our kinsman did is found in Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah, once he gets to chapter 40, he gets on a roll. And by the time he gets to 53, he is really spending some time talking about this Savior that, that, that is being referred to in our lesson today as the kinsman redeemer. 53 verses 3 through 5. Wait just one second. I am thinking, well, that's the problem. I'm in Psalms. That will do it every time. 53. There we go. Got the right place. Verse 3. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, and he was familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely kinsman redeemer he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed you and I have a kinsman redeemer it's the person of Jesus Christ. Boaz is doing an amazing thing for, for Ruth, and there's going to be an incredible uh, result of that that we'll talk about next week. But the picture in, in this passage in the Old Testament, a little story, is a glowing report matching up the, the kinsman redeemer in the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ. He chose to step in our place. He chose to pay out of his resources for my sin. I am declared clean and righteous. I, my griefs and my sorrows, my iniquities and my transgressions, those were all paid for, paid in full by him. And he's been chastised so that I can have peace. He's been scourged so I can have healing. It's an amazing story and an amazing truth. And we ought to all spend some time, maybe in Isaiah 53, or just in, in prayer of thanksgiving 
for the kinsman redeemer that, that worked on our behalf. If by chance you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, all that's very interesting, but I, I don't know that my sin has been paid in full. I'm not sure the kinsman and redeemer had me in mind. Don't go home today without spending a little time with me or somebody else. And let me, uh, let me introduce you to the kinsman and redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth. There's so much good stuff here. And this particular point, uh, the highlight is the picture that's being drawn for us of your work on our behalf at the cross. You didn't hesitate. You didn't say, no, the price is too high. You didn't say, no, there's got to be another way. You willingly laid down your life for people who, who spit in your face with the actions of their life. And instead of condemning them and allow, allowing them to pay the justice that was caused by their sin, you stepped in and, and paid the bill. I am eternally grateful, and I'm sure those that are listening are as well, Lord. Thank you for being our kinsman redeemer. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. It was no fun without you. Thanks for coming.